You are listening to Season 2 of Future Ecologies. The Milroy event took place in Alaska on the island of Amchitka. Amchitka was under consideration as a supplemental site for the testing of high-yield atomic devices. Alaska is a big state. This way, we can see just how big. At the height of the Cold War, between 1965 and 1971, the Atomic Energy Commission detonated three nuclear warheads underground on Amchitka Island in the middle of the Bering Sea, halfway between Alaska and the USSR. After World War II, Amchitka was largely forgotten. 160 square miles of barren tundra bearing the scars and decaying installations left by the thousands of American GIs who served here during the war years. Then, Longshot reawakened the island. After decades of testing in the Nevada desert, Amchitka gave the AEC a new lease on life. First Longshot, and then Milro, a one megaton bomb detonated at 4,000 feet below the surface. And that's when an unlikely figure enters the picture, almost entirely by chance. I finished my master's degree in 1969, so that was during the Vietnam War, and I thought I was going to probably get inducted and have to go into the Army. But I failed the physical exam. It was just a fluke. And uh, so I failed the exam, and there I was. And one of my professors at Washington State, where I got my master's degree, uh, was a consultant with the Atomic Energy Commission at the time. This is Dr. Jim Estes. And I'm uh, retired now, emeritus faculty here at UC Santa Cruz, and I worked for the uh, federal government as a research scientist for most of my career, and then here for the last 15 years or so. The purpose of the Melroy event was to test an island, not a weapon design. Could contained underground nuclear tests be conducted with no hazard to off-island people and within the constraints of the limited nuclear test ban treaty? Could these activities be conducted without a serious adverse impact on the wildlife of the island? They had really not taken seriously the growing political and public concern over environmental assessment. And so when they did decided to go out to Tamchitka Island, they went out with a very different mindset. Jim's contact at the AEC was a professor by the name of Vincent Schultz. He was a statistical ecologist, and uh, we, we'd become very good friends. And he called me up and said, the AEC is looking for somebody to go out to Tamchitka Island and work on sea otters. Are you interested? Yeah. It's good to relax after a busy day. An average day, but a busy day. These fellows wearing the warm coats spend a good part of each day just searching for food. And in this sea, at this point in time, it's becoming difficult to find enough food to go around. But things are looking up, as you will see. I was brought in mostly because the people who had been working on sea otters before 
They had not been happy with their work. I had no training at all in any of it before, but they wanted someone that would go out for a couple of years and spend time sort of becoming intimate with the system and with the species, and so that's how I got into it. Jim's assignment was strategic. While it's amusing to listen to these old propaganda reels, there's a reason why the AEC was making films about sea otters and flying young scientists up to study them. After the fallout from the Milro test, they were facing very real pressure at home and abroad to discontinue testing on Amchitka, or anywhere really. And they needed to convince the public that their activities were safe and beneficial to society, especially since they were gearing up for their biggest test yet. In the late summer of 1971, final preparations were being made on Amchitka Island in the remote Aleutian Island chain of Alaska for Project Kanakan. Thousands of environmental activists stormed the Transboundary Peace Arch in British Columbia in opposition to Kanakan, forming a coalition that would eventually result in the maiden voyage of a newly named organization called Greenpeace. Brothers and sisters in Greenpeace, you are supporting the first Greenpeace project, sending a ship to Amchitka to try to stop the testing of hydrogen bombs there or anywhere. This was the context in which a young Jim Estes, still wet behind the ears, caught a flight to Amchitka Island, sight unseen, to study sea otters. And though, a few short years after the detonation, the Atomic Energy Commission would be shuttered for good, Jim Estes would return again and again to the Aleutian Archipelago for the rest of his career. What he discovered there would change the field of ecology forever, popularizing now familiar concepts like keystone species and reframing the relationships between predators, prey, and their ecosystems. This month and next on Future Ecologies, we're diving into the cold, nutrient-rich waters of the northern Pacific coast to lose ourselves alongside sea otters in their kelp worlds. From Baja to Kamchatka, kelp forests form a green belt that ties us all to one another, to our past, present, and future ecologies. Today, we talk to Jim Estes as part one of a three-part series. This episode is called Trophic Cascadia. Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Penelicate, Huitzum, and other Halkomenum-speaking peoples, this is Future Ecologies, where your hosts, Adam Huggins and Mendel Skalski, explore the shape of our world through ecology, design, and sound. Hey, Mendel. Hey, Adam. What's up? Um, what do you know about the Aleutian Islands? Uh, th- they're like the, like, if Alaska melted while rocketing eastward, they're the little drips that fell off the western tip. 
That's actually a really good description. <laughs> Thanks. So the Aleutian Islands are, are really the uh, volcanic product of the North Pacific Plate subduction zone. So the North Pacific Plate is moving northward. It's diving underneath whatever the plate is that's above it, and that creates this very thin layer of crust and volcanism, and that volcanism is what generated the Aleutian Islands. It's a uh, subarctic environment, uh, treeless, cool but not bitter cold. It's very maritime, and so it's a very stormy place. Uh, you know, my initial impression was was a, a, a you know it was daunting. Uh, I mean, to to land there for the first time and see this vast treeless area. You know, I, I suppose my impression was on the one hand it was exciting, on the other hand it was frightening. I, for one, would feel no small amount of trepidation if I had to show up for work at a nuclear testing zone just outside the Arctic Circle. Yeah, but I mean, sea otters, Mendel. Sea otters. <laughs> how, how, how could he resist? How, how could anyone resist sea otters? Yeah, they are. They are cute. And uh, to explain the draw of working on sea otters at the time, I've got one more Atomic Energy Commission film reel for you. Oh, nice. Now, Mchitka Island is part of the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge, and despite its history of military occupation, it's also teeming with life. But most unique of all inhabitants in the frigid waters around these cheerless, fog-bound islands, the sea otter, an aquatic mammal, ungainly and almost helpless ashore. In the sea, he has grace and style. Bristling silver whiskers make him seem serious and wise. Fact is, he is shy and suspicious. Time was when sea otters, numerous as flocks of birds, swam and fished the coastal waters of America from the outer tip of the Aleutians on down into Mexico. But that was long ago. Perhaps the world's most luxurious fur Fine, dense, and very valuable. Almost two centuries of hunters had roamed the seas, decimating sea otter colonies. And by the turn of the 20th century, these pleasant, playful creatures were on the verge of extinction. And they had only really survived in a couple of small populations in a couple of places. And one of those places was Amchitka and the other nearby islands. In between 1911, when the treaty that protected sea otters was signed, and the late 1960s, that population had grown from just a handful of individuals to thousands of sea otters. But you know, sea otters are cute and cuddly, and people tend to be concerned about things that are cute and cuddly. Naturally. So the idea of they had this beautiful remote island where they could set nuclear bombs off underground, unfortunately, it's surrounded by the cutest and cuddliest creatures on the planet. The most effective protesters imaginable. Exactly. Hence, they recorded some really wild footage like this, showing that after the nuclear blast... Scientists found the sea otters swimming about in their cages, eagerly awaiting their next meal of frozen soul. Wow. Yeah, the, the military is mainly concerned with the question of, how does setting off a nuclear bomb underground affect sea otters? Yeah, just the, uh, the kind of practical scientific question we all ask ourselves from time to time. Yeah. 
So uh, Jim gets to work preparing for Kanakin. Uh, I worked there fairly intensively for two years. And when the test finally occurs, a ton of sea otters die. And Jim makes an estimate of the damage, leading to this incredible New York Times headline, 900 otter deaths tied to Atomic Energy Commission test. Oh. But in the meantime, he's actually been working on his own questions. He's trying to figure out how the abundant kelp forests that the sea otters on Amchika lived in affected their behavior and morphology. But he hits a roadblock when his attempts to radio collar sea otters fails. And that's when, in the summer of 1971, a researcher named Bob Payne showed up on Amchitka. Now, Bob was an ecologist, and just a few short years previously, he had introduced the idea of a keystone species into the scientific literature. Oh, hey, I know this story. Uh, can I do this part? Are, are, are you going to explain a thing? Hell yeah, I'm going to explain a thing. We're bringing it back. Okay, so back in the 60s, ecology mostly evolved around studying how ecosystems affected individual species and their fitness, like how plentiful is my food and... How does that affect me? In ecology, we call this a bottom-up approach. Hey, who's doing the explaining here? Sorry. Yeah, it better be. So, here comes Bob Payne, and he's studying these super diverse, super dynamic intertidal communities on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington state. But he's looking at something different. He's looking at how predators affect their ecosystems. We call this a top-down approach. He's looking at starfish, specifically the beautiful purple and orange starfish that were common on this coast before the sea star wasting disease hit. I, we'll, we'll touch on that later. And he has this hunch. So he does what sea star wasting disease will actually do half a century later. He removes all the starfish from part of the intertidal zone, taking care to leave another area untouched as a control. Then he sits back and watches what happens. And it turns out, in the area where he removed the starfish, species diversity starts to plummet. First, acorn barnacles start to expand and take up all the available real estate, crowding other species out. Later, California mussels take over. What's clear is that the starfish were effectively regulating the whole ecosystem, keeping each of its choice prey species in check. Even though there are relatively few starfish compared to all the other species, They play this critical, previously invisible role. To make this effect visible, he used the term keystone species, which is like a a cool reference to the central stone in an arch. Without that stone, the whole structure collapses. Keystone species have this outsized impact on their ecosystem relative to their own numbers within it. This term has since been applied to beavers, elephants, famously the wolves of Yellowstone, But it all started with Bob Payne and his sea stars. Thanks for explaining a thing. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been too long. So, uh, back to Jim. It's summer of 1971, and he doesn't know any of this yet. After all, this research is hot off the presses. But Bob Payne plays a pivotal role in his story. So I met Bob during that trip, and uh, we spoke the night before he left, and he asked me, a little bit about what I was doing, and I was kind of didn't really know what I was doing. 
And he simply asked me the question, did you ever think about looking at the system, not from the perspective of how the system's affecting otters, but from the perspective of how the otters are affecting the system? And this serendipitous conversation sets off a light in Jim's head. He writes in his book, which is called uh, Serendipity, that before this conversation, he had been trying to develop very challenging methods to answer not very interesting questions. But suddenly, he realized he could ask a very interesting question with the simplest method imaginable, which is just direct comparison. I was very aware of something that he wasn't aware of, and that was the history of otters and the sort of the spatial and geographic history of otters across the Aleutians and the fact that they had simply not recovered at many of the islands, but had recovered at quite a few others. So Amchitka, where I was working, they had recovered. A hundred miles off, there were some other islands where they hadn't recovered, but they had been abundant. We knew that from the fur trade records. And the reason they hadn't recovered is because they're just not a very mobile species. They don't move around very much. And so some of these islands that where the populations had been exterminated, they had not recovered. It had been probably 200 years since otters had been there. And I thought, my gosh, what, a, what an amazing natural experiment to go to some of these places where otters had once been and simply look at it and see, is it any different from the places that they have recovered? This long chain of similar islands with dissimilar human legacies presented a perfect test case for the question Jim wanted to ask. So he convinces the Atomic Energy Commission to send him 200 miles west to Shemya Island, where sea otters had been absent for over a century. After getting clearance with the local colonel, he doesn't waste any time. He puts on his wetsuit and dives right in. And, uh, you know, one instant of looking at that system, it became so obvious what they, that it was a big deal. As soon as I looked at the system at Shemia, I recognized how different it was from the system at Amchitka. You know, there was, there was no kelp, and there were lots of virgins, and there were no otters. And it just all felt, you know, it fit together that the otters were having a big effect. And I knew enough ecology at the time to know what was going on. I knew otters ate urchins. I knew urchins ate kelp. I would say that it happened in less than a millisecond. I mean, just a, an instant glance, and it was clear what was going on. You know, it took another probably 10 or 20 years to convince a critical scientific community that we had all the processes right, because it was just a comparison of two islands that could have differed from any, for all sorts of reasons. I'll spare you the scientific due diligence that Jim undertook to prove the point. But the result is that Jim's work introduces the urchin-otter-kelp love triangle to the world, a triad that many of our listeners are likely familiar with, from the news or from Ecology 101. But if you'll bear with me, I'd actually like to formally introduce these characters to help flesh out this underwater drama. Because this story is about to get much more complex. Okay, let's do it. So first we have kelp. Beautiful, languid, slimy kelp. Hmm. While we refer to kelp ecosystems as forests, kelp aren't trees, or even what we commonly think of as plants. They're actually algae specifically brown algae. They're distinct from green and red algae and considerably more complex morphologically because they have this tough claw-like appendage called a holdfast that anchors them to the seabed, followed by a stem-like stipe, which supports the blade, and a blade, which comes in all sorts of shapes. Some kelps, like bull kelp, are annuals and they have inflatable gas bladders that hold them upright in the water column. 
Others, like sugar kelp, are perennial and just sway with the current. But taken together, kelp ecosystems are incredibly productive and provide food, shelter, and habitat complexity that supports an incredible array of species. I can see you're getting a little carried away with the photosynthetic life, so I'm just going to butt in here and introduce urchins. All right. (laughs) Sea urchins are spiny, spherical echinoderms that come in a wide variety of sizes, colors, and, if we're being honest, flavors. They've got this hard shell called a test, with all the soft bits protected inside, including their reproductive organs, which, if you're a hungry human or a sea otter, you can scrape out and eat. The test has a mouth, known as Aristotle's Lantern at the South Pole, and an anus... Otherwise known as Plato's Portal. That, that's not true. Uh, that's at the North Pole. Sea urchins basically roam the seabed, voraciously consuming all sorts of things, but especially algae and kelp. They have these five sharp teeth that are perfect for severing the blade and stipe of a kelp from its holdfast, setting the whole thing adrift. A herd of sea urchins can easily clear-cut and consume whole kelp forests, but thankfully, they happen to be the favorite food of sea otters. And a raft of otters can effectively keep a sea urchin population in check. This is the major finding of Jim's early research in the Aleutians, that sea otters effectively create the kelp ecosystem they live in by controlling sea urchins. Remove the otters, and the kelp begins to disappear, eventually resulting in an urchin barren, which is exactly what it sounds like, a desert-like seabed of urchins, coralline algae, and not much else, as far as the eye can see. So Jim does a study to document this and write it all up, and it's published in the very renowned journal Science in 1974. This is basically textbook ecology now. But at the time, many in the scientific community were skeptical. At this point, though, Jim's work with the AEC on Amchitka was over, and he wasn't sure that he would make it back up to the Aleutians. Uh, But then in 1974, when I finished my degree, I was hired by the Fish and Wildlife Service to go back to Alaska and work for their research division. So he establishes a long-term research program on another island, Attu, where sea otters have only recently recolonized, but haven't become numerous enough to seriously impact the urchin populations. And he goes there almost every year for the next two decades to document the system, expecting that it will transition from primarily urchin barren to primarily kelp forest as the sea otter population expands. That would be the prediction. That sounds a lot like the marine science equivalent of watching paint dry. Science can be tedious, for sure. But for for Jim, it was really important to make sure that he had it right. That being said, there is an opportunity cost to all of that rigor. We waste so much time not learning interesting things, but, you know, trying to make sure we're not wrong about things that we're almost certainly not going to be wrong about. So right now, since long-term ecological research can be kind of dull, we're going to leave Jim on Attu Island for the moment and take the opportunity to rewind a bit. 
before Kanakin, before Milro, and before even Longshot, before all these nuclear tests in the late 1960s. Remember all those film reels I played you that the AEC produced about sea otters? How could I forget? Well, the first one documented their attempt to transplant sea otters from Amchitka to other locations. Sea otters don't actually disperse very well by themselves. Rafts of males sometimes venture out into the unknown, but it takes them many years to establish new populations because the females tend to like to stay put near where they were born, especially if there are geographic barriers at play. Like, for example, hundreds of kilometers of open ocean between neighboring islands. Exactly. So the AEC figured that Amchitka had enough otters, and they were about to bomb it, right? So they took the liberty (laughs) to capture dozens of otters and place them in these tiny little uh, water closets. I mean, that's a bathroom. You mean like glass boxes full of water? What would you call them? Water coffins? Water coffins. (laughs) I mean, yeah, they're like, they're like, like, like tanks. Yeah, like little glass boxes full of water. Okay. And they load them up on seaplanes and essentially just drop them off at locations that seemed okay. They deposited a whole bunch in several locations in southeast Alaska, which went on to establish thriving sea otter colonies. But they were also in a generous mood, so... Wait. Are you telling me this is how sea otters return to BC? Totally. They're fluffy refugees of U.S. nuclear testing, like like they're tiny little draft dodgers from up north. Yeah, sea otters had been completely extirpated from B.C. during the fur trade. Yeah, we're pretty much the world champs at depleting our own natural resources before anybody else. So 89 sea otters are dropped off at the west coast of Vancouver Island at a place called Chekliset Bay. And that becomes ground zero, if you will for sea otter recolonization of the BC coast. That's wild. So while Jim is out on Attu Island through the 70s and 80s, these populations expand and other scientists start studying them. First in southeastern Alaska and then off the coast of Vancouver Island, scientists are able to replicate Jim's results. That was probably the most powerful affirmation that the mechanisms were correct. The mechanisms being a scientific term for the intricate web of cause and effect mediated by sea otters that results in what is now known as a trophic cascade. Which is another term that Bob Payne coined in the 1980s. You gotta hand it to the guy. He really knew how to give a complicated idea a snappy name. He sure did. And uh, trophic cascade... The basic idea that that changes in the abundance of one species at one end of a food chain could have dramatic domino effects throughout the system has been around since at least Aldo Leopold's writing back in the 40s. But Bob Payne and Jim Estes really put the concept on the map with their work in the North Pacific. And in the 80s and 90s, Jim and other scientists unraveled some of these other impacts of the urchin otter kelp trophic cascade. Like, for example, when otters are absent and urchins dominate the seabed, seagulls tend to eat shellfish. But when otters are abundant and kelps dominate, those same seagulls switch over to eating mostly fish. Neat. The simple presence or absence of large sea otter populations has been shown to have significant impacts on kelp forest fishes, bald eagles, sea stars, mussels, and even barnacles. (laughs) As far as Jim was concerned, by the early 1990s, 
it actually had had evolved to the point at, uh, where, where the more interesting question almost was, is anything not affected by these animals that live in this coastal system? That sounds like an impossible question to answer, but at, at this point, it seems safe to assume that the answer is no, right? More or less, depending on where you are on the coast. But now we're going to return to Jim and his long-term study on Attu Island. Remember, he's been working there every summer from the mid-70s to the early 90s, trying to document in real time the transformation of urchin barrens into kelp forests as sea otters recolonize the island. The only problem is, it never happens. The sea otter population expands as predicted, and the size of the urchins drop as the otters basically eat all of the largest ones first, but the kelp doesn't start to come back for decades. Meanwhile, Jim and others are doing all this fascinating work we've been discussing in other places on other systems, but for some reason, Attu Island just isn't being cooperative. And that's because Jim later realizes of this really important concept called hysteresis. Come again? Hysteresis. Okay, one more time. So hysteresis is basically a functional relationship that uh, progresses along different pathways depending upon directionality. Okay, I'm still not getting it. Yeah, um, that was a very technical explanation. Basically, hysteresis means that if you have two opposing stable states, say uh, a kelp forest on one hand and an urchin baron on the other, how you get from one to the other isn't just a, a gradual, smooth line. It's not It's not the same going one way as it is going the other. Okay, so there's like, there's a bit of inertia in the system. It, it kind of wants to stay in one state. Yeah, once, it, once it's in that state, it wants to stay there. And, and to get from one stable state to the other, the system has to undergo something called a phase shift. Which basically is like a major perturbation that causes dramatic changes in the forces keeping the system in one state or, or in the other. Okay, like, like sea otters returning. Yeah, just like that. So hysteresis means that there's this, this lag time that until the otter population reaches a critical threshold, the system just won't flip from being urchin-dominated to being kelp-dominated. And, and that's because an urchin baron has the ability to self-maintain. It's got its own kind of agency to a certain extent, even under pressure. And so does a kelp forest. In, in fact, Jim and his colleagues have shown that kelp forests can actually repel urchins on their own. It's just an interaction between the kelp and the physical movement of the water that allows them to kind of beat off the urchin attackers. Uh, so that, that, that is an important process, though, in allowing the kelp forest to maintain itself once it has become established, even in the face of some moderate grazing pressure from outside. So basically, until you reach some crucial tipping point that shifts the system from one state to the other, it almost looks and feels like nothing's really happening. And on Attu Island, the otters just never quite reached that threshold. Well, what happened? What indeed? So, by the late 1980s, Jim is feeling like his work on otters is nearing its end. Other researchers, many of whom were his students, are working on urchin, otter, kelp systems up and down the coast, and his long-term study on Attu just wasn't panning out. 
but another chance meeting, this time with a wildlife biologist named Don Siniff, leads to both Jim and Don heading back to Amchitka in the summer of 1990 for one more project. To characterize the demography and behavior of an apex predator at carrying capacity. Basically, when the ecosystem can't support any more otters. It got funded. We went off to the Aleutians with all of these expectations about what we ought to see in contrasting populations that were down at low levels versus those that were at, at carrying capacity. And Amchitka Island was our root site of a population that ought to be at carrying capacity. And we went to Amchitka Island, we did all this work, and nothing worked. You know, nothing fell into line with what the expectations would be. Not only that, nothing really fell into line with what I knew they had been a decade or two earlier because I'd worked there at that time. For example, Jim had expected to be able to easily find sea otter carcasses washed up on the beach to study. Prior to that, at Amchitka Island and places where the populations were at carrying capacity, we used to find hundreds of them every winter. You know, they'd just be all over the place because they're starving to death. And, and so you get a lot of natural mortality in those situations. And those animals starve on the beaches and you find the bones and carcasses and eagles feeding on them and all that. And that just, that was one of the things that disappeared initially. It was like we couldn't find any carcasses and it just, like, come on guys, go out and look. I know they're there. I worked for a couple of years out there. You know, I used to pick up dozens of these things by myself in, in a day. Uh, and like, no, we've walked the whole coastline of Amchitka and we have not found one sea otter carcass. For Jim's colleagues and students, this didn't seem that strange. But for him, it was just night and day because he knew what it was like before. Talk about shifting baselines. I was just befuddled, really. I mean, I just thought uh, this has got to be one of the most you know, the monumental failures of, of I, I, I felt defeated. And we left Amchitka Island. And he stops off at Adak Island on the way and almost immediately gets offered a project studying sea otters there. So I decided to take the project on, and we went out to ADAC, and things just got worse and worse in terms of the, the befuddlement, you know, the confusion. And I mean, it used to be that we could go out and capture otters very easily. They became very hard to catch, very wild and difficult to catch. Okay, so this sounds really confusing. Like, Jim and his team were out there for a couple of years working and just not getting the results they'd expected. And it's during this study on ADAC when several other researchers on Jim's team start to see something really unusual. What's that? Killer whales are attacking and eating sea otters in the shallow coastal waters around ADAC. Whoa, <laughs> <It's> so metal. <laughs> Sorry. What am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> Over the course of a field season, they actually see this happen six times. Like they see it. Yeah, like they actually witness it. Oh my God. And at about that time, we started seeing killer whales showing up in the coastal system in incredible numbers compared to what I'd ever seen in the past. And then we saw them start to eat some otters and then our counts of otters just continued to plummet. and. You know, the question was, could it be that the killer whales, for some reason, are the drivers of this? And could it be that the reason that these populations are not behaving like 
we expected them to behave is because they're actually being driven down by another predator. Okay, wait. So, killer whales actually eat the sea otters? Resident killer whales, like those we know and love here in the Salish Sea, exclusively eat fish, mostly, mostly salmon. But transient killer whale populations eat mostly marine mammals, including seals and sea lions and the like. Right, okay, but those animals have tons of fat and energy, right? Compared to a, a tiny sea otter, it's like a tic-tac to a killer whale. Like, how many sea otters are we talking about here? How, how big was the decline? One of Jim's colleagues calculated that about 40,000 animals would have had to have disappeared in the study area to cause the declines that they were seeing in the 90s. Whoa, okay, that, that seems like a lot of animals for just a few killer whales to, to deal with. That's what Jim thought at first. How in the world could so many otters get eaten? There aren't enough killer whales out there to eat that many otters. That, that was my initial expectation. And so I thought, well, how can we address the question of how many it would take? And there were, it was obvious, really, pretty obvious with a little thinking. One was, how many got eaten? And two, how much of value is there to a killer whale uh, for eating an otter? And it just so happens that Jim's wife, Dr. Terry Williams, had the tools to answer these questions. We were having breakfast one morning and we're talking about this. And she's a physiologist and said, you know, how much is an otter worth? And she said, well, I'm not really sure, but, you know, we could determine it very easily. Let's just get some carcasses and we'll bomb the carcasses. Why is so much of this episode about bombing things? (laughs) What is that? Uh, um, okay, so Jim's talking about a like a bomb calorimeter here, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's basically uh, a pressurized container that allows you to measure the heat energy given off with some amount of biomass, which burns inside of it. So it's the same way that we determine how many calories are in food for all those handy nutritional fact labels. Which is basically the equivalent of what they were gonna do for the killer whales. Right, how many how many calories is a serving of sea otter? We got a fresh otter carcass from California. She sent it up to UC Davis. They've got an animal grinder up there because they've got this big animal science lab. You know, they grind up cows and sheep and all kinds of stuff for nutritional analysis. Sent it up to Davis. It was a little ripe, but you know, it was enough intact. And she sent it up with an undergrad a student that worked in her lab here, and they put this thing in this grinder and they turned it on. <laughs> actually, actually, um, you know, kind of went into shock. And I guess the sound, and just the student collapsed immediately, just, you know, was so grossed out by this thing. But anyway, created an otter slurry, brought the slurry back, bombed it, and so there we had the data on what was there. Oh, <laughs> wow. That, that's kind of gross, but... Kind of awesome, too. In the name of science. We knew how much each one of them was worth. We knew what the field metabolic rate of a killer whale was. And so we simply asked, how much is a killer whale population getting from all those otters if they ate every one of them? And conversely, how many killer whales would it take to eat that many otters? Okay, so what did they come up with? Well, uh, Terry ran the numbers. And she came in one morning and said, I just did the numbers last night and it's like 3.2 killer whales or something. And I said, that can't be. She said, I'm sure, I've done it twice to make sure. 
you've got a decimal point wrong somewhere, you know, that can't be. But those numbers, they were right. Wait, just three killer whales. That's if it was only three killer whales that kind of developed this taste for otter and then only ate otter. If they only ate sea otters occasionally, like maybe even 1% of the time, it would have only taken 300 killer whales across the Aleutians to drive the otters down like that. Holy sh**. And there were definitely more than 300 transient killer whales in the North Pacific. So what it basically tells you is that an animal like a killer whale, a big metabolically active predator like that, can have an effect that is massive on the system. It was intuitively surprising, I suppose. Uh, I think logically there was nothing really all that complicated about what we did. The killer whale hypothesis also helped explain other observations Jim had made, like how they couldn't find any carcasses for all of these dead otters, and how sea otter populations in this sheltered lagoon called Clam Lagoon on Adek Island, which is inaccessible to killer whales, hadn't declined at all. Well, everywhere else across the Aleutians they had. I couldn't really quite put, get my head wrapped around the whole reason for it, but as we started getting onto the killer whale hypothesis for the decline of the otters, it, it, all of this stuff started to fall in line. You know, it just started to all make sense. And once it started to all make sense, I think the only thing that I was worried about at that point is, I'm, have I gotten to a point where I'm trying to rationalize this now? Or is this really objective? Is it really true? And, you know, I spent a lot of time pondering that. I spent a lot of time asking critical colleagues. Uh, I pretty much got to the point where I stopped worrying about that. Or how Jim learned to stop worrying and love the bomb calorimeter. Yeah. And not everybody loved this hypothesis. Least of all, the killer whale community. But... It was the only game in town that made any sense, and the evidence was reasonably strong. It was not definitive, and never will be, but it was reasonably strong. That didn't stop this study from being published, again, in the journal Science making international headlines, and finding its way right back into those ecology textbooks. Okay, so I am bothered by one thing here. Yeah? Where were all these killer whales back when Jim was doing his original studies on Amchitka and Adak in the 70s? Why do they just start eating so many sea otters all of a sudden in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, uh, Jim wanted to answer this question too. And this is where his work went from being provocative to being downright controversial. Oh yeah? I, I won't go into all the details of the controversy because I think they say more about the scientific community than they do about actual science. But um, essentially, Jim took the notion of the urchin otter kelp trophic cascade and just exploded its boundaries. What do you mean? So here's something, okay. Killer whales, uh, the Latin name is Orsinus orca, are actually the largest members of the dolphin family. Yes. They are cetaceans along with other whales, but they're actually in this whole other family, the delphinidae, uh, which you know as dolphins. Right. So so why are they called killer whales? Uh, I, I thought I knew why they I mean, I, I previously presumed that they are scary whales that kill, but the the way you pose this question makes me think that maybe 
I don't quite have that right. <laughs> this is going to blow your mind. All right. So as far as I can tell, killer whales comes from a mistranslation of the Spanish asesina ballenas or whale killers. Throughout the age of pre-industrial whaling, sailors would witness killer whales attacking and eating other whales, often whales that the whalers had killed and were just trying to reel in. Oh my god. So whalers were having to fight off killer whales for their catch. Yes. It's mind-blowing. My mind is blown. So killer whales eat whales. Killer whales ate whales. They might still do it occasionally, but there just aren't that many whales anymore. In the North Pacific, in the post-war era between the, the 1950s and 70s, at least several hundred thousand great whales were harvested by industrialized fleets. Jeez. It makes 40,000 otters seem like nothing, right? Like hundreds of thousands of whales. So, so when Jim and his colleagues were trying to figure out why killer whales may have suddenly started eating lots of otters in the 90s, they looked back a couple decades, before the International Whaling Commission instituted a moratorium on whaling in 1982, when great whales were nearly hunted out of existence. Okay, just like sea otters, a hundred years earlier. Exactly, and, and here's the thing. Imagine that great whales made up a significant portion of the transient killer whale's overall diet. If you take that away, these are big animals. They need other food sources. And it just so happens that in the subsequent decades, the 80s and 90s, populations of harbor seals in the North Pacific plummet followed shortly thereafter by fur seals, then by sea lions, and finally, by sea otters. Our hypothesis was that it started with whaling and that one species of marine mammal prey after the next after the next was subject to increased predation intensity because the killer whales simply didn't have the nutritional resource anymore to support them. And they started preying on things like stellar sea lions and harbor seals and eventually sea otters at much higher intensities than they ever had in the past when they had this other super rich and productive and abundant food resource out there. That That's one heck of a set of dominoes. Otherwise known as a trophic cascade. That's incredible. Uh, Jim and his colleagues traced the whole cascade to post-war whaling. Yeah, and they published this idea. Hypothetically, of course, because it was virtually untestable. The primary merits of the idea are just that it's elegant and it explains so many things at once. And also the lack of definitive evidence for another explanation for all of these different declines. So it's not perfect. Hmm. And after the publication... Things got ugly, ugly in a scientific sense in that people started publishing papers that were critical in other journals and then there were response papers and then response papers to the response papers. So catty. So I've included a lot of these papers published uh, for and against this hypothesis in the show notes for those who wish to dive in. It's actually fascinating. Suffice it to say, what we've presented here is not settled science. You know, I, I had a we had we had a battle with the the marine mammal community over whether killer whales ever even ate big whales. And if they didn't, then obviously our hypothesis was totally wrong, you know. But I think that has been put to rest. For some in the marine mammal community, that is the uh, community of marine mammal researchers, marine mammals declined to comment for this episode of Future Ecologies. Why won't they get back to us? 
This and other questions may never be put to rest. We'll probably never be sure whether Jim's hypothesis, which is now known as the megafaunal collapse hypothesis, is true. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that megafaunal collapse had massive impacts across ecosystems. It wouldn't even be the first time on this podcast. But one thing is for sure. Sea otter populations collapsed across the Aleutians in the 1990s, and they have yet to recover from those losses. Well, in the 90s is when the system fell apart. That's when the otters collapsed and when the kelp forest shifted from being a kelp system to an urchin system. And we saw that happen. We were living on top of the system when it changed. It was a remarkable thing to see, and it happened very quickly over the course of a year or two. Um, It's still that way. The otter numbers have continued to decline. There aren't very many of them. Uh, they haven't declined much, but there has certainly not been any recovery. Um, the system, at least the last time I looked at it or any of my colleagues that have been up there, and it's been a couple of years now, was still urchins everywhere and no kelp. Um, we hardly ever see killer whales anymore, as it was in the beginning. My explanation for that is that there's no reason for them to be there anymore. There's nothing for them to eat. These transient killer whales, their otters are gone, the pinnipeds are gone, everything else is gone. Why show up? Why even come around? Feels like a completely different world. You know, there used to be sea lions all over the place and there were otters all over the place and there were a lot of seals around and all that's gone now. And, you know, we have data to document these various patterns, uh, but unless you've seen it with your own eyes, I think it's hard to be quite as impacted by it. Uh, You know, I was out there during a time when all of these marine mammals were abundant, when there were thousands of harbor seals at Emchitka Island and tens or hundreds of thousands of stellar sea lions across southwest Alaska and lots of otters and so on and so forth. And now all those things are gone. I mean, there are a few. You'll see a seal here and there now and then. See a sea lion here and there. You know, the otter populations have declined by about two orders of magnitude. You know, by about 98 to 99% of what they were in the early 1990s when we first started working there. So it's hard I think you can read those numbers, but unless you've seen it with your own eyes, it just doesn't quite have the impact. You know, I mean, it stunned me beyond any reasonable recounting. That's tragic. It's funny that you say that because Jim doesn't see it that way. He knows these populations are capable of recovery. He's seen that too. I I don't see these as a tragedy, except to the degree that it's been so difficult to get people to open their eyes as to the relevance to other systems, to big animals in nature. I first read Jim's name as the lead author of a paper in 2011 from Science called The Trophic Downgrading of Planet Earth. In it, Jim and over two dozen co-authors lay out examples of trophic cascades they've documented in nature from around the world, including the kelp urchin sea otter orca cascade. And by trophic downgrading, they're referring to what exactly? 
Let me try to explain it the way I did when I taught general ecology to students. And I would say, imagine a world uh, that had nothing but plants and that the physical environment was not limiting to them. There were plenty of nutrients, there was plenty of sunlight, there was plenty of water. Those are the main things that they need. And there will be lots of plants. We have a green world. This is the world that I want to live in. That's not surprising. Now imagine a world where we add one more element, and that is herbivores, things that eat plants, with nothing to limit them other than the food that they're eating. This is the world I actually live in on the Gulf Islands. <laughs> Under those circumstances, you at least conceivably and predictably have a world where the plants become very much less abundant. Now add a third trophic level, predators on those herbivores. Conceivably, that those predators on the herbivores will eliminate that herbivore effect, allowing the plants to become as abundant in the system as they would have been were there no other animals around. And you can take that logic as far up the food web as you want. Add another predator and add another predator and add another predator, and it's going to cascade down all the way to the plants. And it's going to do so in a predictable way so that when there is an even number of trophic levels, that is two or four or six or eight, you're going to have a world in which the herbivores are limiting the plants. And when you have an odd number of trophic levels, that is one with just plants or three predators, herbivores and plants, you're going to have a world that is very much like one without any herbivores in it at all. And so that's the basic theory. The otter, urchin, kelp system is an example of a three trophic level system where you have predatory otters influencing the herbivorous sea urchins, thus influencing the plants, the kelps in the system. When the killer whales entered the system, they turned that three trophic level system into a four trophic level system by eating the otters. And it behaved exactly as that theory would predict, and that is that it became an even-numbered ecosystem, the herbivores became abundant, and the plants became rare. So trophic downgrading, then, is when there's a change up top that cascades down the system, affecting the plants negatively. In fact, the notion of trophic downgrading is a little more complicated than that. It could operate in any number of different detailed ways. But that in every particular case, if you perturb these higher trophic level species, expect to see big changes. You could say that we're seeing big changes in the world today, and, and Jim's work has been critical to understanding them, at least here on the Pacific Coast. There is a lot going on in this ecosystem. Yeah. But well, what's amazing to me is that you made it through this entire episode spanning the whole oceanic food chain from toe to tip without even once mentioning abalone. I did, didn't I? I guess we better fix that. That's next time in part two of our series on kelp worlds. Thanks for listening. This episode of Future Ecologies was produced by me, Adam Huggins. And me, Mendel Skolsky. In this episode, you heard Dr. James Estes. Also, Jim gets a huge amount of credit for all of this groundbreaking work, but as we spoke to him, he wanted us to make sure that we recognized all of the students, collaborators, and researchers that made these discoveries possible, and that we just couldn't include in this episode. We can't name them all, but special thanks go to John Palmisano, Tim Tinker, Dave Duggins, 
Jame Watson, Bob Payne, Terry Williams, Don Sinoff, Vincent Schultz, and Dan Doak. We'll be back next month on the second Wednesday with part two of this series. Please rate and review Future Ecologies wherever podcasts can be found. It really does help the show. And we always love reading what you have to say. Special thanks to Donna and Paul Humberger, Ilana Fenariev, Anne Solomon, and Simone Miller. Music in this episode was produced by Tidebringer, Ben Hamilton, Luke Rokuda, and Sunfish Moonlight. If you'd like to help us make the show, you can support us on Patreon. Pay what you can to get access to bonus monthly mini-episodes, stickers, patches, and more. This season, Mendel is guiding a tour of mushrooms and the kingdom fungi. You'll love it. Head over to patreon.com slash futureecologies. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. You can find a full list of musical credits, show notes, and links on our website, futureecologies.net.